Matthew chapter 5 this morning. And I just want to begin as we uh, read this uh, section of the Beatitudes, beginning verse 1, and then we'll conclude this today. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up unto the mountain, and he was, when he was seated with his disciples, came to him. And then he opened up his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we've learned previously here in the the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, we've learned that that little word blessed means happiness. And so we've talked about, you could actually read that, happy are the merciful, happy are the pure in heart, happy are the peacemakers, and so forth. And in Christ's first recorded sermon here, the first thing he said is that he wanted people to be happy. He didn't come into the world to make people miserable. Unfortunately, that's the view of some folks today. They walk around, yeah, I'm a Christian, and they have long faces and ashes on their head, and they're just depressed. Christ came into the world so that people could have true happiness. It's only available through Him. And that's different than the world's view of happiness. The world's view of happiness basically says, you know what, if you make it to the top and you got all the bells and whistles and the nice house and all the money and the nice car and the nice little perfect family and, and all that stuff, the wonderful marriage, then you'll have happiness. Well, that's just not true because you can find people that meet each one of those kind of segments of our society and they're anything but happy. But the Lord's definition of happiness was, is different. It's the opposite. It's opposed to what the world says. Um, he basically said the truly happy person is not somebody who is self-sufficient. That's what the world says. But Jesus said the truly happy person is someone who is like a cowering beggar before a holy God. Who realizes that he has no hope within himself, but all his resources have to be found in Christ. A happy person is meek rather than proud, Jesus said. A happy person isn't positive about himself. There's a lot of positivity being going or being taught today. Just be positive. Don't dwell on the negativity. Don't you know there's even churches that say, Well, we don't talk about sin because that's negative. Well, that's not biblical either, but they don't seem to care about that. A truly happy person is someone who mourns over his sin. And understands that he's isolated from his God. See, contrary to what the world says, the Lord really affirmed that a happy person is self-sacrificing. Somebody who's willing to sacrifice themselves for the cause of others. He's merciful. He's willing to endure persecution to make peace between God and man. See, today people are pursuing happiness on all the wrong terms, on their own terms. So when they run into Christians 
who are pursuing happiness on God's terms, there's inevitable conflict. It's just going to happen. In Matthew 5, 10 to 12 here, he says, Blessed are they who, persec- who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, those who desire true happiness in their life must first seek it on Jesus' term, not on your own term. It doesn't work that way. And his terms are basically presented here for us in the Sermon on the Mount. They must go through the narrow gate, not the broad gate. They must build their house on the rock, not the sand. They must have a desire to be known by the Lord on Judgment Day and therefore live out a righteous life before a holy God. And when you do that, beloved, what's going to happen? You're going to be faced with hostility from a godless world who doesn't understand the righteousness of Christ. There was a man who was basically preceded the Reformation. Savon Arola was his name. And basically, he was around during the 15th century. And he lived in the city of Florence. And he was one of the greatest reformers and preachers probably the world has ever known. And he regularly denounced sin and the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church at the time. And his time helped really prepare the way for the Reformation. You don't hear a lot about him. But it was said that people who sat through one of his sermons, one of his services went about in the streets afterwards half-dazed. They were bewildered. They were speechless. His congregations were so often in tears that the whole building was just sobbing. And many people during that time even didn't like the way that he preached. And he was eventually burned at the stake. Can you imagine being burned at the stake for preaching the gospel of Christ? I really believe if we as Christians were more confrontational with the truth today, and we really lived out what Christ is telling us to live out in Matthew chapter 5, I think that we would find the world to be a little more hostile place than what it is. Since we started this series, I've had several people come up and say, well, I don't think that, you know, I, I don't have a lot of persecution going on in my life, and I don't, I don't see the world hates Christians and all this. I don't know where you're coming from. Well, my answer to them is you must not be living out what Christ said. Because this isn't a suggestion, this is a promise. If you live out a life that's depicted by the righteousness of Christ, the world will hate you, the world will persecute you. Who will be persecuted from the world? I mean, basically, it's those who live for Christ. Philippians 1.29 says this, Unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also what? But also to suffer for His namesake. That's a promise. In 1 Thessalonians 3.3, it says, No man should be moved by these afflictions. They were being afflicted, and Paul said, Hey, don't let these bother you, because you yourselves were appointed to these things. See, that's the other side of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus saves. But the gospel is also that once you get saved, you're going to have to endure affliction. You're going to have to endure persecution from a godless world. If you've ever confronted someone who is a non-Christian about their sin, they don't embrace it. They get angry. 
They get in your face. They say, hey, that's good for you. I don't want to hear it. And so what do we do as Christians? We just kind of pull back and say, well, we don't want to be rude. We don't want people to get mad at us. So then we very seldom share the gospel of Christ. Well, how will you suffer as a Christian if you live out the Christian life? He tells us right here, Matthew 5.11 says, Blessed are you when the men shall revile you, persecute you, and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. As Christians, we'll basically suffer in three ways. First of all, you'll be harassed, then you'll be insulted, and then you'll have evil things said about you that aren't true for his name's sake. What does that mean, that aspect of being harassed? The Greek word translated persecuted in verse 11 means basically to pursue or to chase away. And over time it came to mean harass or treat in an evil manner. In effect, Jesus is saying, blessed are the harassed. And we talked about how the first seven Beatitudes express an inner attitude. Well, this too also is an inner attitude. It talks about the willingness to be persecuted. See, as a Christian, if you don't have the willingness to be persecuted, it doesn't mean you go out looking for a fight. I'm not saying that. But if you're not willing to go out and share the truth and understand that, you know what, persecution is going to come as a result of that. Now, you may not be burned at the stake, but people may not want to go to lunch with you anymore. People may not want to hang around with you anymore if you're living a Christian life, if you're living a righteous life before God. See, the Jewish people of the day had this external religion. <laughs> You know, as long as you wore the right clothes and you washed your hands the right way and you, you said the right words at the ceremony and you didn't hang around with the right people, well, then everything was okay. And Jesus came along and said, uh-uh, it doesn't work that way. Christianity is different. I'm not about a religion. I'm about a relationship. And Christ preached that relationship with something that was internal. So he hung around with sinners. He had them, went over to their house for dinner. And that's why the, the, the religious leaders of the, day just thought, of the day just thought, what is this guy doing? He claims to be the Messiah, and yet he's going to spend time with these sinful people. They couldn't understand that. And you know what? We have to be careful ourselves as Christians. It's very easy to become isolated from the world, thinking that we're doing a good thing. We think as long as we just gather here on Sundays within these four, four walls, and then we won't be, you know... Uh, polluted by the world. So then we go home to our nice little Christian family and we fellowship with our nice little Christian friends. And yet we have neighbors all around us who are dying and going to hell, but we don't seem to care because, well, they're non-Christians. And we grow complacent in our Christianity. See, the internal attitude expressed here in the Beatitudes result and a desire to obey resulted in a desire to obey Christ and accept this persecution that was going to be the result. It's interesting here when it says, Blessed are they who, have, uh, who are being persecuted. It, it's, in, in the original language, it's, it's called the perfect passive participle. And you could actually translate that verse this way. Blessed are they who have been willing and continue to be willing to allow themselves to be persecuted. The perfect tense kind of indicates this ongoing attitude. It's not something when you get saved and you go out and you share the Lord with somebody and you're persecuted, then, woo, don't have to worry about that anymore. I got my persecution over with. It doesn't work that way. 
It's an ongoing thing. The passive voice speaks of being willing to accept whatever comes as a result of living out these Beatitudes. See, so many times we look at it the other way. If I, you know, we have some, some guy at our, our work or lady at our work and they're, they're non-Christian and we want to share Christ with them, well, first thing is, you know, how are they going to react to it? And so we try to take the Gospel and we try to just make it a nice little story. And we forget that the Bible says the cross is an offense. <laughs> it causes people to stumble. I mean, that's why Christ was crucified. We forget that sometimes. And many of us aren't willing to be persecuted. We all struggle with that. Sometimes we're not willing to be bold. You know, probably the hardest thing I've ever done in ministry was to perform my brother's funeral this past week, last Thursday, last Wednesday. And I struggle with how bold should I be? I mean, you have a captive audience. What are they going to do? Tell you to sit down and shut up? I don't think so. So I was trying to work within certain time restraints, and I thought, I want to present the gospel, and yet, you know, I don't want to be offensive, and, you know, I just struggled with that. And then you have all the emotional issues. And sometimes we justify our behavior because we, in our minds, we rationalize if we're not popular with people, if people don't like us, then we won't be able to speak to them about the gospel. So we, we want to be liked by people first, and, 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 you know, and we want to just be liked by the world, and then maybe God will open up a door, and then hopefully maybe we can sneak the gospel in there somehow. We forget that God doesn't need sneaky preachers. He doesn't need sneaky prophets. He doesn't need sneaky witnesses or sneaky evangelists. He needs people who are willing to confront the world about their sin. And that's not easy. Some people do it better than others depending on their personality. The early Christians were willing to be pursued. They were willing to be harassed. For some of them, it meant imprisonment. For some of it, from, for some of them, it meant death. How would your faith change if you knew when you stepped out of this building there was going to be people there with handcuffs because you were here worshiping Christ, just going to haul you off to prison? Would you be here this morning? Or worse yet, what if they were going to come in and take you and say, "Hey, are you are you going to worship the government? Or are you going to worship Christ?" I'm going to worship Christ. Fine, come down here. We got a nice little guillotine set up here, and we're going to lop your head off. Or we got a cross uh, stake out back, and we're going to burn you at the stake. How would your faith change? See, we 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 don't deal with those issues here in America because we live in a free country. But you know what? The noose is tightening, beloved. And I really believe there'll be a day when we'll have people sitting in our congregation taking notes, not for their own edification by the Word of God into their own spiritual lives, but they'll be going back to a center and they'll be saying, here's what he said. Here's what he said about homosexuals, that it's a sin, not just a lifestyle. And so forth and so on. And eventually someone will show up at the door of the church and say, you know what, you can't be saying these things. This is hate speech. We're going to have to make a decision. Are we going to stand on the solid ground of God's Word or are we going to compromise? That's what happens. He needs people who are willing to confront the world. See, if you desire to live a Christian life, I really believe this, you're going to find it hard to mingle socially 
with people of the world. You're just going to find it hard. Some people can do it. Some people have one life within the, 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 the life of Christ, the church, and then when they're over here with their worldly friends, they act another way. That's not honoring Christ. That's not standing up for the gospel. You say, well, you don't understand. You know, it's a matter of business. I can't just... No, it's not. It's a matter of doing what's right before the Lord. Once again, it doesn't mean you have to be some self-righteous person and you know think that you're better than everybody else. You're not. It's just the opposite. You realize that you're not worth anything. That it's all Christ. Because Christ-like people end up being chased out of godly or ungodly worldly groups that they once were a part of. We'd go around the room and you could tell stories once you came to Christ. You know what? There was probably a certain segment of people that you couldn't hang out with anymore. They didn't want you to hang out with them. Because you don't fit there anymore. Spiritually, you've been transformed. You've been forgiven. You're changed. You have a different perspective on life. And that's the way it ought to be. If you're sitting there this morning saying, well, I'm a Christian and I fit in fine with all these ungodly people. You need to look at your heart. You need to ask, did God really change me? Or am I just play acting? Am I just pretending? So that's the first thing. The second thing there is people will insult them. Revile them is the word used. It means to cast in one's teeth. It's also used in Matthew 27:44, where it says that thieves also who are crucified with Christ cast insults in his teeth. The criminals crucified with Christ mocked him and they scorned him. See, to revile somebody means to abuse him with a vicious, mocking word. And you know what? It, the Word of God says here that there's come a time when you live out your faith in a strong way, in a Christ-honoring way, that people will abuse you. People will insult you. You'll be mocked. That's what happened to Jesus. The third thing, people will say evil things about Him. How many people here like to have evil things said about them? You just wake up in the morning and go, man, I can't wait to go out there and witness and just have evil things said about me all day long. We don't like that. That's probably, out of these three, that's probably the hardest one. Because what happens? You kick into defense mode, don't you? You heard so-and-so, this is what they're saying about All of a sudden you feel you've got to defend yourself. So all of a sudden you start defending yourself about something that never even happened. <laughs> kind of silly, isn't it, when you think about it? We need to learn to say, hey, that's what people are saying, that's what people are saying. I don't really care. I know my heart before God. I know my life before God. It's not perfect. But you know what? I know that that thing is not true. I'm just going to let it roll off. not easy to do. Some even accused Jesus of being the son of an illegitimate, uh, an illegitimate son of a Roman soldier at the time. He never even addressed it. Well, how will you suffer? There's different kinds of persecution. People will harass you. They'll insult you. They'll sell evil things about you. But also... We have to look at the extent of persecution. See, back in, the, in Jesus' day, the extent of the persecution was death. In some countries, in some nations today, 
If you're found out to be a Christian, they'll kill you. We, we don't understand that, but that's where they're coming from. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul paints a pretty vivid picture of what it meant to the extent of the persecution that he faced. He says in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 4, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, talking about him and the apostles, last as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. God appointed the apostles to death. So you have to understand the history, what he's kind of weaving in here for these folks when he writes this letter, the Apostle Paul. You have to understand that in the Roman government, in the Roman military, when a general went out and he won a great victory, he was given the privilege of, of leading a parade back through the city with his victorious army through the streets of Rome. And the soldiers would carry all the spoils of the war that they just won. And it allowed this general to demonstrate a tremendous triumph that he had achieved. And at the end of this long procession with all the soldiers carrying all the gold or whatever they got, there was a group of captives all the way at the end. Small group of captives. And they were kind of tokens of the conquered people. They were basically put at the end of the parade to say, you know what, you, you go against Rome, here's what's going to happen to you. And what they would do is they would lead this small group of captives into the arena and they would be executed in sordid ways. One translation reads... 1 Corinthians 4.9 this way, God means us apostles to come in at the very end like the doomed gladiators in the arena. That, that word there, appointed to death, it's kind of a rare term and it refers to the sentenced criminals who were paraded as objects of mockery as they marched off to their execution. And so Paul really likened the apostles to a group of captives appointed to death. While people watched and people mocked. They were also despised. 1 Corinthians 4.10, he continues there. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. He's kind of sarcastically referring to the Corinthians' pride. They were a very prideful church. And in contrast to their faulty view of the Christian life, Paul said of the apostles, look at what he says in verse 11, <clears throat> To the present hour we both hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed. We are beaten, we are homeless, we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscoring of all things until now. That word filth refers to any dirt that needs to be eliminated, anything dirty. That's what the world thinks of us. 
The offscoring of the world refers to refuse that you would have to wash off someone else. That's what Paul's saying about himself and the other apostles. That's how the world views us. They had counted the cost of following Christ and they were willing to make a sacrifice. A sacrifice that I think we have no idea to what extent it was. See, Paul wasn't interested in getting the accolades of the world. He wasn't interested in people liking him. He wasn't interested in, you know, doing all the right things so that, you know, he would be exalted and lifted up. That kind of stuff didn't impress him at all. Let me ask you a question this morning. What credentials do you boast in? In your own life, are they those of the world? You know, to be honest, many in the church in general do not view Christianity the same way Paul did. They just don't. I never met a Christian. I walked up and said, hey, what do you think the world thinks of you? Oh, you know what? We're the filth. We're the offscoring of the world. I've never heard that. Too often we think we're stars. We're the ones that are lifted up. We're the ones that are exalted. A lot of times, people who call themselves Christians get into the biggest you know, headlines in Las Vegas or Los Angeles. They have their own TV shows, all this stuff. They're, they exalt themselves. Someone once said, too often those who identify with the name of Christ live in two worlds. They dance in Las Vegas, then they change their clothes and they give their testimonies in church on Sunday morning. We all know many famous people who say they are Christians, even including our own president, congressmen, athletes, actors, singers. Very seldom have I seen one of these people walk away from that whole Hollywood life and say, you know what, I've been called to a different standard. I'm going to do things differently. You can probably count on one hand the people who have so-called come to Christ, who live in that world that actually have changed their way of life. I mean, I'm thankful for those believers who are truly believers and they do make a difference. But so many times, these folks, and us included, we try to waltz with the world instead of confronting it. We're trying to make friends with the world, not understanding that the world's our enemy. Christianity has become, become kind of the religion of the elite, the acceptable religion, the religion of the rich. But see, Paul wasn't like that. He didn't look at it that way. Paul didn't say, I graduated from the University of Gamaliel, magna cum laude, and I speak many languages, and, and I'm a personal friend of several kings and famous men, and, you know, I died once even, and I went up to heaven. I want to come speak in your church. I'll make a difference. He never said that. He had an incredible testimony and he could probably hold us all captive. And he could have had crowds following him, but that's not the way he was. He wasn't interested in that. We see Paul's credentials listed over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 27. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and 27. He says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. 
in labors more abundant, in stripes above measures, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, in weariness and in toil, in sleeplessness often in hunger and in thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to stumble? And I do not burn with indignation. If I must boast, look at what he wants to boast in. I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying in Damascus. The governor under Archaeus, the king, was guarding the city of uh, the Demetrians with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a, a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. And he goes on and on and on. In verse 12, he says... In verse 7, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, he says, Unless I should be exalted <laughs> above measure by the abundance of revelation, he says this, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. We don't know what that was. It could have been an eye problem that he had. We don't know. It says, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And here's what his answer was. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So many times we think the Christian life is this life of ease that we've been called to, that we just lay back in the armchairs of grace and just expect God to just bless us, bless us, bless us, health, financially, all this stuff. You just got to be positive, think positive. That's not the life of a Christian in the New Testament. It's just not there. You won't find it. See, when a person tries to do God's work in their own power, they fail. They fail. And so, as Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. See, when we're weak, that's what, what honors Christ. If we come to him saying, hey, I got everything under control, you know, I got, I got these talents, I got these gifts, just get up there, shoot out a sermon, and, you know, do this, do that, whatever, real talented musically, whatever it is. The minute we get there, God has to humble us, because it's not about us, it's about Christ. He knew that when he was most aware of his own lack of resources, God would then use him to confront the world. We live in a day, unfortunately, that Christianity is engaged in self-glorification. It's all about making everybody feel good and lifting everybody up. That's not the way it's supposed to be. As a matter of fact, we quote this verse often, Acts 1.8. Holy Spirit come upon you, and on and on, and it says, You shall be my witnesses. A lot of us don't realize that word witness really refers to martyr. It really refers to one who's willing to die for his faith. 
It's not just handing out a track. It's not just leaving a little track with your tip at the end of your dinner. That's not what it's about. It's being willing to pay the price. It's about being willing to be bold for Christ. Making a difference in your neighbor's life, in your kid's life, and in people in your community's life. Why? Because you're living a life that's confronting the sin that's in the world. You say, why does... Why will Christians be persecuted? Three reasons. The world reject, rejected Christ. The world rejects Christ's standard. And also, the world loves darkness more than light. I spoke to someone who worked in our prison system yesterday. And I said, how is it to work in there? I think he worked at, at uh, San Quentin or somewhere like that. And I was talking to him. He said, you know what? It's the epitome of evil. He's a Christian. I said, what do you mean? He goes, just everywhere you look. If there's a tattoo on somebody's arm, it's evil. It's Satan. It's a demonic thing. It's 666. It's all over. It just permeates that whole subculture behind those bars. That's darkness. And when you confront darkness, what happens? There's a big confrontation there. When we confront a sinful world that loves darkness rather than light, it's going to react. And it's not going to react nicely. You have to understand, the world wants Christ dead and buried and gone. They don't want to deal with this. Their conscience can't handle it. That's why every time around Easter, every time around Christmas, you pick up a Newsweek, what's in there? You know, was Christ really God? And, you know, did He really rise from the dead? And everybody comes up with all these theories and what of trying to disprove Christ. John 15, 18-20, Jesus knew that's the way it was going to be. And He said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. Because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than the Lord. If they persecuted Me, they're also going to persecute you. If you've kept My saying... They will keep yours also. See, those who love Christ love Christians. Those who hate Him hate Christians. And I know that's a strong word, but that's, that's the way it is. When Jesus came into the world, He confronted people with the reality of their sin. If Christ hadn't come, they could have continued to kind of gloss it over. The Judaism of, of Jesus' time allowed people to do a great job in kind of just helping them with their consciousness, ignoring the truth. As long as you washed your hands right, or you said the right thing, or you did this, you hung around with the right people, you're okay. But every one of them was just kind of ignorantly marching on their way to hell. And what Christ did is He ripped off the blinders and He allowed them to see their own fate for the first time. And either they responded to the grace that Christ was offering, or they responded with hatred. They retaliated. See, there's nothing wrong with us. Well, maybe some of us are a little weird sometimes. But you know what? People don't hate us personally. But they hate what we stand for. They hate the righteousness of Christ that is in us. But we're called to act like salt in the world. Matthew 5.13, getting into that next week. And when you put salt in the world, you get a reaction. Have you ever had salt in a wound? 
Remember how that felt? Not good. Remember one time we were snorkeling over in Hawaii, and I think it was with Crystal actually, and she was in one one kind of these channels that go through the reef, and I was in the other, and I thought, well, you know, when a wave comes, I'm just going to hop over this reef just while I'm swimming, because it was, you know, three feet of water, no problem. Well, I hopped at the wrong time, apparently, because I was on my stomach, and I remember coming down on that coral reef, just, just scratching me. And I remember that pain as that salt water permeated those wounds, and, you know, it wasn't like some gash. But it was just a, a scratch enough, and you kind of react from the coral anyway. It just was so painful. See, when we re reach out to a lost and dying world with the message of Christ, it's like putting salt in their wound because you're confronting their sin. We need to be bold about our confrontation of the world. We don't need to just kind of hide away in our little night Bible studies until the rapture comes. That's not what Jesus called us to do. He called us to be the light of the world, the salt of the world. And God, through Christ, told us what would happen. In John 16, He said, They'll put you out of the synagogues. The time cometh that whoever kills you will think that he's doing God a service. And these things they will do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. See, the world isn't accepting Christ's standards of righteousness. It just doesn't accept it. They won't tolerate those who confront sin. I mean, I think personally the world is more tolerant of an evil religion like the Muslim faith who kill everybody except their own than Christianity. We see that in the news all the time. Because they got everything switched around. It's interesting here... Just to close this off, when will you be persecuted? He says, blessed are you when... That means whenever. See, he's not saying once you become a Christian, every day you're just going to be persecuted 24-7. He's not saying that. And they didn't live that out. They had a lot more persecution going on in the world in Jesus' day. But even then, Jesus had times of peace. <clears throat> he had times retreated to the Mount of Olives. He relaxed with the Twelve by the Sea of Galilee. So... Even in his life, there wasn't persecution going on 24-7. He's not saying it would be unending. But when it does occur, he's saying God brings his blessedness to the willing soul. The person who embraces that persecution, not tries to squeeze a way out of it. And just to help you understand this, we're not to go out of these four walls and seek persecution. You know, we don't go out and be rude to somebody with the message of Christ and then they slap us across the face and say, I'm being persecuted for Christ. No, you're just being ignorant and rude. That's what you're being. We'll be as wise as serpents, but as harmless as doves. A lot of times we bring on reactions from people and I think it's just our own crazy personality or the way that we're dealing with people. Or maybe our lives don't live up to our message, so they look at us and just go, yeah, right. I want to go to your church. I don't think so. We're not to seek persecution, and yet, on the other hand, we're not to run from it either. That's very important to understand. And the promise here in the end in Matthew 5, when we deal with this persecution the way God wants us to, 
the way Christ did as we prepare our hearts for our communion this morning. You remember Christ was reviled. His, his body was beaten. Crown of thorns placed on His head. And He was God. And any time, any moment in that whole process, He could have said, Zap! You're all zapped. I'm out of here. But He didn't do it because His love for us was so great that He was willing to endure all that. Because He knew in the end, through God's power, the power of the Spirit, He would win. He would be victorious over sin and death. And the same thing here. When we encounter persecution, we should, in verse 12 says, we should rejoice. We should rejoice and be exceedingly glad. That doesn't just mean, you know, yeah, you know, I was sharing my faith the other day, and oh, somebody called me a you know, stupid Christian, and you know, I was a little you know, bummed out about it. No, we should be happy that that goes on. That's a confirmation that you are a Christian. When people notice a difference in you and you share the message what the difference is and they don't embrace it, maybe they do revile against you. It says here that you should be exceedingly glad. That's just not a little simple praise the Lord. You know, that's jumping up and down and whistling and hip and hollering and everything. Just going crazy about this. And so many times I hear people, you know, through their communication, when they're witnessing, and then they get discouraged, and oh, it's just my friends don't want anything to do with me, and they're anything but exceedingly glad. I'd say if that's going to be your attitude when you're persecuted, don't even do it, because you're not living up to the biblical standard. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Who do you think you are? Do you think you're greater than them? The first beatitude began with the promise, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the last beatitude here ends with that same promise, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. No matter what the world does to us, if, if we know Jesus Christ, it can never affect a Christian's possession of Christ's kingdom. Burn us at the stake, burn us at the stake. Cut out our tongues, cut out our tongues. Do whatever you want. It's not going to affect my relationship with Christ. You know what? It was interesting. As we went through the service last Wednesday, and I was trying to communicate the gospel to the people who were there. And the one thing I shared was my brother Bob was always an achiever. He was very successful in his career. He was very successful in his travels. He traveled all over the world. And he was a pretty likable guy. But I shared with them that as my brother came to death's door in the end, he literally basically had nothing. He's retired due to his illness, didn't own a house, didn't own a car. Had a couple pairs of pants and shirts. He didn't have a lot. And you can look at that and go, how could somebody be so successful and yet end up like this? Bad choices. But you know what? In the end, he won because he knew the Lord. See, in the end, it didn't matter whether he had a car. It didn't matter whether he had a house on it. It didn't matter. He didn't really care. And I'll never forget the day... And we were down at Stanford, and we left the doctor's office, final visit. And I stayed behind, and I was talking to the doctors a little bit, and I said, okay, what's the, 
just give me the, the real deal here. And the doctor said, what do you want to know? I said, I want to know how long, and I want to know how painful this is going to be. And he said, well, somebody in good health, six months to a year, your brother's not in good health, he's got heart issues, got aneurysms all over the place, so you know, we're looking maybe three, six months at the most. I said, all right. And he goes, it's a painful death. Lung cancer, you're basically just shutting down. And I said, okay. I would basically keep my morphine till the end. And I said, all right. So started praying. God, take him home. There's no way out of this. But I remember as I walked out of the doctor's office that morning, and I was already trying to catch up to my brother because he was, he, he faced it. I mean, he just looked at the doctor and said, well, thanks a lot. You did everything you could. I appreciate all your hard work. And uh, I'm going to head over to the pharmacy now. And he took off. So I stayed behind asking these questions, and I came out. He was all the way down at the end of the hall there near the pharmacy, and I kind of, hey, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to the pharmacy. And I'm thinking, what is he going to the pharmacy for? And Bob had issues, a lot of addictive behavior. He was a recovering alcoholic. He had pain medication he was addicted to, and I thought, I wonder what he's doing, you know? And uh, he said, well, I, I noticed on the way in that they had some of those Reese's Bites in the pharmacy. <laughs> now I'm going to go get me a couple more bags of those. So I finally caught up to him and we were walking together and he said, I know what you asked him. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? And he, I know what you asked the doctor. And I said, well, what do you want to know? I'll tell you anything you want to know. He goes, well, I don't want to know the date. I said, well, the doctor didn't give me a date. <laughs> and he said, uh, but what would you do? And I said, you know what? I said, you're an achiever, you're used to winning. I mean, this guy could be getting on a plane in Las Vegas, walking through the airport, grab a quarter and throw in a slot machine and win 150 bucks. There wasn't anything that he didn't just kind of win that way. And I said, you know what, Bob, you're used to winning, and I just want to tell you right up front, this is a game you're not going to win. This is going to take your life, you're going to die. It's just a matter of time. It could be a month, be a week, you know, but we're all going to die. And he looked at me, with this little grin on his face, he said, kind of jealous, aren't you? <laughs> I thought, what? You're kind of jealous. I'm going to be up there in heaven. You're going to still be down here, you know, doing what you do. Uh, and I thought for a second, I thought, you know what? Even though he doesn't have a lot of material things, even though his health stinks and everything, this man is going out the right way. He's going out with his perspectives in order. And he was so focused on the Lord in the, in the last couple of days that, you know, I went down there one day and he's had the Bible on his lap and said, what are you doing? He said, I'm reading the book of Amos. And so he started, he was kind of whacked out on the pain medication. And he started reading the book of Amos to me and this other guy that was in his room he shared the room with. And I couldn't understand him because he had his mouth thing in and, you know, it didn't make a lot of sense. But, uh, you know what, he, he knew that that was God's truth. And I just want to let you know, when it comes down to the end, there's not a whole lot of things that you need to be holding on to. The new car, the new the new house, the new job, all those things, it's not going to matter. When you get that news that you have a matter of weeks to live, what matters is the truth. And you find the truth in God's Word and in your faith in Christ. And you know what? That's what these, this study through the Beatitudes did. At the beginning I said it's like Jesus went into the store window and switched all the price tags around. What the world thinks is great, Jesus said, no, it's not so great. Here's what's great. And that's what He desires of us. He desires of us hearts that are broken, that are humble before Him. That are willing to look at ourselves and say, you know what, I'm nothing. I'm just a sinner and I need God's grace. And I want to live my life to His glory, not my own. That's what He wants. That's why He went to the cross.
I just want to ask the men to come forward this time. As we come to our communion time this morning, and close, close this section of our service in prayer. I just want to ask you, where's your heart this morning? Are you trusting in the things that Christ would have you to trust in? Are you trusting in the things of this world? Are you putting value on things of material worth? Jesus said very clearly, What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And yet, he loses his own soul. This morning as we come before this table, Lord, we thank you for the message of the Beatitudes. We thank you, Lord, that you call us to a different standard. And Lord, when we live up to that standard, when we live through the power of the Spirit, we can't do this on our own. We're just sinners saved by grace. But Lord, when we live a life that's worthy of your calling, that's not going to be embraced by the world. They're not going to look at us and say, oh, look at that wonderful Christian man, that wonderful Christian woman. They're going to revile against it because it pricks their own conscience. It shows them their own sinfulness. And so, Lord, we pray that as we live this life that you've called us to, that we would do it with boldness, that we would do it with enthusiasm, that we would do it with a heart for you and for the lost. And Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who has yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, I pray it's just a prayer away. It's not, you don't have to belong to a church. You don't have to sign on a dotted line. It's none of that. It's an issue of your heart. It's an issue of knowing that before God, you need to be broken over your sin. You need to realize your inability to save yourself. We're used to saving ourselves. But in this case, we can't. We have to trust in Christ. He's the one that died in our place. He's the one that extends His mercy, His grace to us when we embrace the cross. Just cry out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me the grace of Christ. I need it. I'm tired of doing things my own way. I want to trade God's way. He'll answer that prayer. He'll make you a different person. He'll transform you. He'll forgive you. He'll give you a peace that you've never known. A security in Christ. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We pray as we come to this communion table that you would remind us of the, the suffering that Christ went through. The mocking and the slander and the physical torture. And Lord, He did it all for us. And He did it willingly because He loves us. And Lord, I pray that You would allow our hearts to be right before You. If they're not, Lord, just allow us to pray to You even now and to get that sin out of the way, to confess it, to claim Your forgiveness. That all those who partake this morning would first of all know Christ in a personal way and secondly, have a pure heart before God. Because we have a righteous standing. We're justified in Your sight and we thank You for that. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.